Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is once again Jeff Goebel um, in New Mexico with About Listening. We had such a good time and we barely scratched the surface in in the last interview that we decided to come back for a second one. And who knows, there might be a third or a fourth in the near future. This is all just so, so energizing and fascinating. Jeff, welcome and thanks for coming back. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it, Eric. Thank you very much. Um, one of the things that we almost got to in the last conversation and that we've been meaning to come back to is uh, some of your work um, helping um, with the communication with the tribes and uh, that you've been working with the Native American groups. Um, and if you want to weave in a little bit more context there about kind of like your services as about listening and how that how that extends into this, that'd be cool. You, you had mentioned some work with the Coville Nation. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, thank you, Eric. I sure appreciate the opportunity again. Um, so um, I might just kind of start with that story, you know, where we started with that and whatnot, but um, um, the Colville, the, the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation is, um, there, there are 12 bands of, of Indians, American Indians, who were through executive order, so it's a, by the, the President of the United States, said you're going to be exiled onto this piece of land. There wasn't any treaties for these people, so there wasn't any you know, agreements that um, um, were between the people like a lot of other tribes have. Um, and there are three different language groups that were of the 12 bands. So they're really just sort of forced to be together it's in the reservation today is in north central Washington state, the United States, and they um, um, it's about a fourth of the size of the original reservation area and gold was found in the other areas. So those lands were taken over because of the gold rush and whatnot. So it was really compressed down to, to uh, it was 1.3 million acres when I was working with them. So they um, we're having problems getting timber sales on those lands. Um, of that 1.3 million acres, about 800,000 of it was commercial timber lands. And so they were ha- having troubles getting timber sales to happen, um, which was important for generating the money that would pay for the government's jobs and whatnot and the government services. And so um, they needed a way to resolve the conflict that was um, not working to get that functioning smoothly. So they hired me. Sorry, sorry, Jeff, when you, when you say government, you mean tribal government, right? Yeah, tribal government, thank okay. you, yeah, okay. yeah. And um, so I was, um, they hired me to um, to help them resolve that. They wanted to do an integrated resource management approach. And I said, I'd rather do a holistic management approach, which um, to me is really, it's really kind of reversing the arrows. It's in integrated, it's, you still have sort of the experts from the different integrated departments or concepts, disciplines, uh, of you know making decisions for the body, 
the government bought or the people. And what the holistic is, is a reversal of those arrows. So it's actually the people making, deciding what it is that they want and telling the, the disciplines, here's what you need to help us do to get where we want to go. So I reverse those arrows in terms, and, and that's pretty common in the planning world is the planner makes the decisions um, about where, based on their own value set about what needs to be done. And not too, too often do we connect with the people that are being, um, because we usually don't have the, mean, the know-how and the means to connect with the people effectively. So it's usually the planner that's make, driving the whole system and whatnot. And that then yields the um, conflict stuff because if the planner has different values than the people, obviously there's gonna be conflict. So that's what they hired me to do. And as I, um, as I just got my feet on the ground uh, getting started, my first month I was there, um, I learned about a, a summer internship program with five high school kids and they're tribal high school kids. And they were, um, they went through the natural resource department, which is where I was based at. And I, I thought this could be a neat opportunity I asked my boss, who's the director of the department of the 13 program areas um, of natural resources. I asked him if I could um, work with them. And he was like, well, we hired you to do some important stuff, you know, not work with the babysitting program is kind of what it was considered to be. And I said, well, if you would humor me, I, I would really appreciate a little time with them. And so um, he reluctantly, he gave me two weeks to work with the kids. And that was my first month there. So, so I had, um, I, um, the first part of the first week, I talked to them about the power of a holistic vision or a holistic goal, a holistic direction, which is based on the people's, you know, the input from the people, the guidance from the people. And it's about, you know, includes things like the social and cultural values, um, the quality of life that they want. It includes the means to support that way of life. You know, the, the types of um, things that you need, the social and, and economic conditions to support the way of life. And then how do you sustain that way of life, you know, from a community point of view, social point of view, and also um, from an ecologic point of view. So you're going to be out there, you know, a couple hundred years in the future. And so that's the, the concept of that vision. And it gives you guiding direction um, I sometimes call it and logic. So we're going to do social, quali social, cultural, quality values. We're going to do economic enhancement and the and logic. We're going to do ecologic enhancement. We're going to do all of that at the same time. We're not going to either do this or do that. It's going to be one whole. So, um, so I talked with them for the first um, couple of days of the week about that. And then on Thursday, near the end of the day, of the first week, I, I sat the kids down and I said, well, how do you feel about this reservation? And these were high school kids. And they said, well, we love this place. This is our home. This is where we, this is, this is our home, you know? And then I said, well, how do you feel about the future? Where do you feel the future is going to be? And they said, they got really depressed and sad. And they said, we don't think there's going to be a future for us. I don't think we're going to be around in the future. And I I said, you know, that, you know, I, you know, acknowledge that that felt probably pretty crummy. And I said, um, so I said, what are you kids going to do about it? You know, and they looked at me and said, well, we're high school kids. What, what do you mean? What are we going to do about it? And I said, well, aren't you tribal members? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, you have as much right to the future of this reservation as the chairman of the tribe does or the you know, spiritual leaders, you know, this is your future. And you probably have more invested in it because you got more years ahead of you than they do. So I said, what are you going to do about it? And they said, well, what can we do? And I said, well, do you think there is this holistic goal for the tribe? You know, this vision, this common vision that we're working toward. They said, no. And I said, because everybody's going off doing different things. I said, I said, well, why don't you create a holistic goal? You know, and if you do that next week, the second week, if you're with me, I'll get you in front of the elders. I'll get you in front of the business council, which makes the decisions for the counts for the tribe. And I'll get you in front of the natural resource department, which is my group. So, so I said, tomorrow morning, when you come in on Friday, your last day of work this first week, 
what um, you show me a plan and of how you're going to attain this goal and then I'm going to um, then you're done for the day and they came in at eight o'clock in the morning and by nine o'clock I let them go because they had this beautiful plan and of course I got chastised by my boss saying why did you let these kids go for you didn't make them work a full day and I said well they created something very very powerful and uh what they designed, what they came up with that they showed me was that they're going to interview a hundred leaders in the tribe, all the way from the spiritual leaders, the, the chairman of the tribe, the business council members, all the way down to some of their own peers and whatnot that were leaders in their in school and stuff. So they had a hundred people that they were going to interview. So I said, okay, get to work by Tuesday next week. I want you to have uh, this vision. And then with that vision, we'll go talk to these leaders in the tribe. So they, um, um, so they're gone for the weekend. Then on um, Monday morning, they they were working on it, and I bet you they were working on it over the weekend. Anyway, they interviewed 85 of the 100 um, people on their list, and they had these statements, and they pulled them together into a two-page vision for the for the future, a holistic vision for the future. But beautiful, it's absolutely beautiful, and um, based on this, you know, interviews of 85 people and so on wednesday we got them in front of the elders and um, the council of elders and the elders literally started crying because of how beautiful that was i mean this is what the people this is you know that notion of seven generations this is what they wanted to see for the future that they wanted to leave for these children and here these children came up with this concept um, through these interviews and then on Tuesday, thursday you know got them in front of the business council and they're more practical, this you know, government management, and they just sort of puffed up with pride and said, look what our kids can do, you know, and then on on Friday, I got them in front of my department, my uh, 13 managers, and, um, and shared it there, and then that then became our marching orders for our department was to do what these kids came up with, with a vision, and it, it was, you know, absolutely remarkable because we well, how that influenced us, for example, was within um, within two years, we were able in our financial planning for or the budgeting process, we were able to double our our outputs, um, like land treatment from ten thousand to twenty thousand acres a year, um, to a higher cultural and environmental standard, and we cut a million dollars out of the budget. So where we're using 17 million dollars to do 10,000 acres marginally in terms of quality now we're going to do 16 million dollars a million dollar drop to do 20,000 acres at a much greater quality cultural and environmental quality and um and as a result of that um, that million dollar savings from our budget previous year's budget we went to the business council the tribal council and said, our request this year is that we want to do more work at a higher quality and we want less money. <laughs> and, and there was no reason for us to do, the government, the tribe, the, the council didn't say every, every department you gotta cut money, you know, we didn't have to do that because we had enough money that year. But we came there and said, we wanna cut money because it's the right thing to do for the future of the tribe, which is based on that holistic vision that we had that any money we didn't spend that we didn't weren't you know that we you know frivolously spent any money we save could be reinvested into something else for the better betterment of the tribe for the future so that that guiding vision that these kids created helped us do things like that do a higher quality committed to a higher quality much more work and doing it more efficiently and uh, so that's an example of what happened just from that first you know month that i was there and it was the kids that did it, you know, it was incredibly powerful. And the following year, when they came back, the um, one of the students that I was working with, they got to choose who they could work with all summer long. And one of them chose to work with me. And uh, there had just been the first um, Earth Summit for Youth Earth Summit um, that was just starting to happen at that point in time. This was 1993 or something like that. Anyway, 92, I think. Anyway, um, I asked uh, Jaylene's her name, 
I said, um, what would you like to do with me this summer? You know, you get, you're going to be here with me this summer. What do you want to do? And she said, well, you know what I'd really like to do? I'd like to create a, an Earth Youth Summit for Native American kids and, um, you know, for like the state of Washington. And I said, well, if you're going to put the work into doing fun for the state of Washington, why don't you just do it for all the tribes in the country? <laughs> And she says, you know, I mean, you know, it's not much more work to get that many more people there. And because um, you're getting, you're laying out the groundwork. So um, she says, she goes, do you think I can do that? And I said, no, the question is, do you think you can do that? And I'll help you, you know, but do you think you can do it? And she said, I think I can. I said, well, let's do it. And nine months later, she was over in Ocean Shores, Washington State, with 200 American Indian kids coming together for the first Native American Earth Youth Summit. So it's the power, you know, of what people can do when you create that opportunity. So that's, you know, that was the beginning, but that was just the first month. And the uh, second month I moved into, um, um, because my program was new and we had been doing timber sales and projects like that in a standard that's typically done with you know all the agent you know land management agencies in the in the United States and probably a lot of other places, and um, and what I saw was that again it was these planners that were creating the plan for the Indian people and here's this impasse that we're running into of why we weren't getting timber sales revenue out the other side of the equation, so. I, um, my first watershed plan, which was, I think, for 15,000 acres or 25,000 acres, something like that, um, you know, I set up a new model of how to do this work. And so I had been observing that in our meetings, the folks that had the degrees were um, trained from universities, um, not, not American Indian universities, but from, you know, the white culture in universities. And, um, and they were the people who were the, the, the employees um, at the tribe, you know, it was required that they had degrees from those universities and pretty much everybody in the circle of planning were white, you know, they were the ones with the degrees that had the degrees and, and um, that's who really sat in the circle and there was actually in the meeting room, a table that these planners would sit around and then on the outside of the circle on the, on the edge of the, of the room, there's a circle of chairs on the outside or square, you know, and um, they were a few of the tribal members who had like the range department. He didn't have a, a range degree. He just had a, you know, uh, I don't think he even had a, you know, two-year degree, but they would, you know, a couple of tribal members would be sitting out there. And I observed that these guys did all the talking that were in that circle or in that around the table. They never asked these people who are tribal members what they thought about these plans. And they were working on their expertise and whatnot. And they were arguing about it a lot. And um, so the first thing I did with my first plan is I had two of those. Uh, I had a biologist and a forester who were, you know, white trained, white, and they were trained from the university. They were the team leads. And um, I decided that what we're going to do is we're going to invite 12 elders to take us on a tour of that watershed. And I told the two team leaders not to say a single word all day long, just listen to what the Indian people are saying. It's now their turn to talk, not our turn. Our turn. We've had a lot of time to talk. And so we just let the elders take us in this watershed wherever they wanted to go and talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And uh, they were, you know, folks from that watershed, they grew up there and whatnot. And they just talked, they took, told stories, they, we went to different sites, they laughed, they cried, you know, it was really a beautiful day. And in the afternoon, we went for a beautiful picnic lunch overlooking the Columbia River in Washington. And it was a beautiful day. And um, we had a great lunch. And then after lunch, I asked the elders two questions. Uh, first question was, how do you feel about how the reservation's being managed today? How do you feel about the conditions you see? And there was just this silence and you could just feel it, just this deep shame and guilt and pain of how the land was being treated. It was, you know, it was horrible. And um, 
And there is a sense of powerlessness that they were elders and they have felt a responsibility for the next generations. And they were not, they felt that they couldn't do anything about it. And they didn't feel what was being done was the right, was good, you know, was bad. And so it was pretty heavy. And then I said, after they got done sharing that, I said, well, what would this watershed need to look like for you to feel good in your heart about the future of the tribe? What, what Describe it. Talk about it. What would it look like here? And they talked about pumpkin, pine trees, open park-like stands, and the way it used to be. Fire would be part of the, you know, but not fire the way the white people did in the, in the spring when it's wet, but fall fires when they used to burn. And it would be big blocks of burning, not just 40 acres because it was clear cut or something. And they would want to see the streams flowing again that used to flow that now are dry most of the year. They wanted to see medicine plants come back that used to be there and are gone. Um, they wanted wildlife populations like, like they were. They wanted, um, they wanted jobs for their people and um, you know that, that opportunity. So when they finished describing it and you could really feel they were really you know excited about this idea, I turned to the two white planners and I said, you guys just got your marching orders. You're going to create what the elders just said. And there was just this disbelief, like my forester said, I didn't go to forestry school to learn how to grow medicine plants. And I said, well, he said, I went there to grow trees. And I said, well, you're going to learn how to grow medicine plants and you're going to get water flowing again. And you're going to get the wildlife populations going and um, and you're going to grow trees, you know, and uh, and you're gonna have jobs, you know, and, um, and you know, disbelief there. And then of how are we gonna do that? And then the um, elders, I turned to them and I said, we're not gonna do a thing out here until we come back with you and make sure that we got it right. You know, so, and they were in disbelief because government <laughs> never would do that. You know, they just went off and did their own thing. And um, so we all left in disbelief. <laughs> so we worked hard for about a year. Um, on this vision that the elders had. And a year later, we, we went back out to the elders when we thought we had the plan right. And we said, okay, elders, we, um, we think this is, this is what we thought we heard you say, what you wanna see. Here's what we designed, how did we do? And they just started crying and they just said, that's exactly what we wanna see here. You've done it, you know? And, um, and so, they unanimously agreed the, the concept that we developed. We brought it to the, the, count, the community um, and asked them next, you know, the, their, their families and other people and stuff, you know, this is what the plan is. How do you feel about it? And again, unanimous agreement, 100% agreement. And then we took it to the Tribal Business Council and, you know, blesses it, allocates the dollars to go toward, toward it and toward the work. And... Um, and of course, it would be political suicide to go against what the elders wanted, but they unanimously agreed to it. And uh, and from that, that was my first thing to bring to the council as a formal action. Well, the next four years, everything that I brought there passed unanimously, a hundred percent. And that was not common. You know, it, you'd you'd often have one or two of the fourteen council members um, voting against it, and sometimes you'd have seven seven splits and whatnot and uh, but everything that I brought there was 14 council members in agreement zero opposed to it and that was the power of listening respectfully and believing that diverse points of view are critical to being successful so listening to those voices and including those voices ideas into the final design and so instead of discounting them or saying well we can't do it it was expanding our way of thinking so that we could do more of this. And what happened in that first watershed after we implemented is that um, the foresters had wanted to do like this much cut. That would They like to cut trees and they thought this is what they could get away with. Well, we ended up cutting with the, the elders plan 50% more trees. And to, to do this part that the foresters had, they estimated 21 miles of new road and to do this total was only seven miles a new road. And roads are very, very expensive. They, they damage the earth, the soil, and the, you know, they're very damaging on the earth. Um, they also, if designed poorly, um, if they are also um, very costly, it takes a lot of time to put in roads and it costs a lot of money to put in roads. So by 
doing more harvest and by reducing um, the amount of roads, it was amazing just the savings that we had, time, effort, and that sort of thing, um, and money um, with that. The other thing that um, we did, we also looked at how do we bring medicine plants back in, and um, and what we did is we learned where those medicine plants like to grow, what kinds of soils, <laughs> and then we also looked at what's the conditions that those medicine plants like to grow in. So like it turned out that a, a certain canopy closure was important. Like if it got too dense, it got too dark and they would disappear. If you open it up in a clear cut, you know, it would be too bright and they would not, not grow. But there's just a certain, you know, so the right soils, but a certain amount of light getting in there, those medicine plants would come back. So we also managed the forest to, to do that, to be able to allow for those plants to, you know, to, you know, we found out where those soils were, for example, and then we managed for creating those kinds of conditions. We also, um, you know, looked at what do we need to do to get the water flowing again, and we found that um, that we were not getting water back onto the soil was one of the big pieces that was happening. There was a lot of intercept that was happening. So by opening up more to in relationship to those medicine plants and whatnot, um, those needs, we were able to start getting more water flowing. And so we started to bring the streams back. And of course the roads, you know, have an intercept on, on those streams and whatnot as well. So we just, you know, our creativity, you know, um, and then when we got down to the cost part of it, um, the, the Forest Service who was adjoining this property um, typically did about $125 an acre was their budgets. Usually it was about $300 an acre to do the land treatments. And um, we budgeted $75 an acre and we ended up doing it for $29 an acre. So we were, you know, it was amazing. And this, we were doing it, you know, with the elder's guidance in terms of how to do this. And then the other thing that happened was we um, brought back the fall fire burns and big burns. And um, and the year that we implemented this was a dry summer, you know, so it was actually, you know, a challenge with, you know, we'd be afraid of doing this. Well, we did it their way. We burned their way. We burned 5,000 acres. Um, and we burned, what we decided was that we would harvest after the burn in case we lost a bunch of trees we didn't intend to lose. And so we could harvest them at that time. And by doing the, the fire the elders way, we actually um, didn't lose any trees that we didn't want to lose. So, you know, and so we, you know, um, and the 5,000 acres just went up and went out, you know, and so it was, uh, because we designed it to work with topography and the winds and all that sort of thing so that it actually just stopped. So, I mean, it was absolutely amazing what happened by including that indigenous knowledge and finding the balance between indigenous wisdom and science. And we brought the two together to work together in partnership. And as a result of that, we did better than what science could do. You know, it was really, really a, an amazing experience. And that really then set the course that then helped us, like, for instance, double the land treatment at a higher cultural and environmental standard while um, cutting, you know, being more efficient with what we did with the money spending and whatnot. That gave us the on-the-ground actual uh, knowledge of, and, and the way to do it. And from that point on, timber sales just started moving and whatnot. Um, there was a lot more trust built up because tribal members knew what we were doing. They, they um had confidence because they had confidence of, that the the white planters understood what the values were. Um, we also, you know, back on that, um, um, you know, on that plan, that planning we did internally in terms of um, how do we spend our money. Um, we one another example was that we had game wardens that were chasing poachers over, you know, you know, they drive millions of miles a year chasing poachers, you know, and in turn, so we started looking at, well, what's the cause of that problem? Why do we have poaching going on? And let's drill into that. And what we learned is that, um, that there was a real disconnect between the, the biology, the white biology knowledge, and the traditional wisdom about how to manage wildlife. 
And so we, we learned to do a better bridge of bringing those two together so that we were in harmony with, um, with the traditional, with, with the people. And that then took out the complications. So we still had great wildlife management, but we're able to do it in a way that was harmonious with the traditional way of doing that. And then also because of that, the communities got um, the social structure, um, you know, became empowered. The communities became empowered to actually do self-policing. So they would tell tribal members that might think about violating um, the agreements that we had made that that wasn't acceptable, that you don't do that. And so there wasn't any longer this need um, so much for a tribal policeman or a game warden to go out and chase people, the, the community was taking care of that. And so our incidents of poaching went way down. The other part that we had with the poaching issue, of course, was hungry families that might need some food at a certain time. So we made a better way of having, making it easier for tribal members that needed, you know, maybe some elk or something or some meat or whatever, or some fish or whatever to, um, to, to take care of that need, which was, you know, just, it, it just made it easier for, for that need to be taken care of. So, so our incidence of poaching went like down to zero and um, our mileage of driving and chasing people, the costs went way down. And instead we invested in just community relationships and building understanding and that sort of thing. And uh, so that's an, that's an example of the planning we were doing, the level of planning that um, on this longer term vision um, made, made huge changes. And as a result of the work we did, when we hadn't even thought about this, but I mean, this wasn't an intention, but there are three federal laws that were being proposed at that time, three bills that addressed Indian country in terms of forest management, agricultural and, um, and integrated management. And we were asked by uh, congressional people to help design those things. And all three of those became uh, federal law um, as a result of our design into, you know, in, in designing those things. And we designed and designed them realizing that, um, that there's 550 plus uh, independent tribes that all have different values, different backgrounds, different beliefs, uh, autonomy, and that sort of thing. So let's make a law that well, let's make a law that respects that, and and we also in that law, you know, instead of the government being the driver of things, just like those planners were the driver, let's start first from the idea that here's what the people want, and let's first, you know, at at each tribe ask what the people want, and then have government help supplement, you know, help make that help happen. So, you know, provide the resources and if there's technical needs and that sort of thing, but have it instead of being the, what the planners want or the government wants, the, the national government, let's make it so that it's driven by what the people want for that land from a holistic point of view. So, yeah. So those are a couple stories that uh, uh, some of the work that we did back in the early nineties, that was um, um, pretty impressive, you know, to be able to have a hundred percent agreement. Yeah, I'm impressed for sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. I keep as as, you're, as, you're, as I'm listening to you, I keep thinking like, it's so obvious. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's so obvious. Oh. Just, <laughs> just, just ask the people who are you know who are concerned what they need. Yeah, you know, they've probably been looking at it a lot harder than anyone else. We're going to take a break now, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D. A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise and another riveting story with Jeff Goebel. 
where I live here in New Mexico, the Pueblos have been here for thousands of years, you know, so they, they know what this environment, in fact, that's, you know, another part of what I've been doing is working with the language programs and, um, you know, in different places, because the thing is, is that local language for the human, human consciousness, the local language has figured out words that describe events that are going on locally, you know, on the earth, earth events. And, um, and my God, what a, what an encyclopedia of knowledge those languages are for, for our, our societal world well-being, you know. That's, um, that's why one of the first moves that a colonizer does is to, is to try to take the language. Yeah. What, what relevance, does, mm -hmm. what relevance does English have for yeah. this area, you know? And, and the months, what does the month, the word December mean? You know, they've got words that say, this is what happens in that time of December. You know, that's exactly. their word for that, for that month, you know. Exactly. That, yeah. It, remi yeah. it reminds me a bit of, of uh, you know, what I learned when I was living in Ireland in, in terms of the Irish language. Yeah. And how difficult it is, or in some cases, just pointless uh, to try and translate that into English because yeah. the, because the cultural values which are embedded in the way things are said yeah don't read to an English colonizer mindset no no it's it just confuses them you know or, you, yeah. or it just it, it sets up a creates a, a kind of cognitive dissonance for them because yeah yeah because it's it, it's asking it's requesting it's it's expecting a different orientation to things. And I think that's one of our problems today with this regenerative work that we're doing is that our, our the English language is pretty linear. It's not circular. It doesn't under, it doesn't think holistically. You know, it, it it's reductionist. It is, you know, it's 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 very interesting. When I worked with the Navajo people, um, the Diné people, um, it was funny because when they would write out it in in the Diné language, it would be about a page, it would be one and a half page, times as much wording on the page as if we wrote it in English, you know, to, to be able to, to be descriptive enough uh, so people would understand it, the volume of writing was longer. It was just interesting. And um, and when we, yeah, it was just, it was just, it just is so interesting about that. And, and I took a Salish language class when I was up there at the Colville's too, to, to, to one of the three languages. And um, it was so interesting that, that uh, like the word for, uh, there's, a, there's a berry called uh, service berry. And in the scientific view, there was two species in our area uh, of service berry. In their language, they had seven species. So what is it that they knew about that bush that, that science didn't know, you know, that we said, well, there's only two. Well, they, they said there's seven, you know, and, and they could tell you which of the seven out there. They could see it. And uh, yeah, so, I'm, sure, I'm sure some of those distinctions had to do with use. It had to do with, you know, lots of, of things that a limited uh, Western scientific, you know, classification system, right? wouldn't even examine you know how many flower parts um you know is the leaf seg you know serrated yeah. or smooth yeah. and you know a few things like that that's okay good enough we know the difference there's two of them mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so and and those there's important uh indicators for us with with that you know is that um that if we're seeing some stress on the system and we're losing some of those or like some of it was when they leafed out you know they um you know if we're starting to see some of that changing it's monitoring things that are really that are important and uh you know so so it's just there, there's just so much knowledge that, that i feel like if if we lose languages anywhere in the world indigenous languages it's like losing a species because there's a whole collection of human knowledge that all of a sudden has gone because the language is gone and, and that was, you know, that was the, um, this early work with the tribe at the Colville's in natural resources. When we brought that, um, our proposal to the business council at year two of cutting our costs and doing more work at a higher quality. And there was no reason, you know, other than it was the right thing to do, which was put back to those kids as a vision. Um, 
we uh the business council kind of perked up and first they you know they were surprised because they said Did, are you sure you guys got your numbers right you know because like you know you know you're gonna do twice the work for less money and it's gonna be better quality and they said yeah we got the numbers right and then they said um they looked at the other department heads for the whole government 250 government programs and they said did you hear what natural resources just said you know and uh council said could you know jeff could you help do this for the whole government and uh so the following year so you can imagine you know like a lot of governments and how they struggle with but annual budgets and whatnot we 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 worked together i did a couple trainings i did a policy analysis training which gave the commitment help to drive the, the the rationale for doing a different way of doing financial management for government and then we did uh the financial planning um uh training that showed a new way of of planning for a scale like that and then we all did we did all this work with consensus building so that we um where we and i defined consensus as a hundred percent agreement to do the right thing so and we look at it measure it by the behavior that we were actually acting that way not just talking it you know by just words and so that's what we set up to do and the other part that i asked for is to expand on what the kids had done when I first got there was to go out and interview as many tribal members as we could within a two-month period of time and we now had 740 tribal members that put input into the vision for the tribe which was not surprising but was really was really cool was that the, the four paragraphs we ended up with for the vision for the tribe which the tribal business council um, unanimously supported became tribal law was that vision was very parallel to the two pages that the kids had come up with you know two years earlier so that became the marching order and that was our measurement for measuring how the 250 government programs and their spending methods means were doing in relationship to this long-range vision and so we went ahead and we 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 made an agreement consensually in the beginning to um at the beginning of our, our of that year's budget cycle was to have um, to, to have a five percent cut in costs or in, yeah in spending um, to have all 250 government programs and and um, 14 council members unanimously agree to the budget piece we came up with um, not cut any salaries or cut any sacred programs or um, and, and cut any jobs um, and yeah and we would have the budget done three months early. Um, and that was because um, that's the the political cycle. So we, you know, every new political cycle, you get new people in that are elected, and they say throw the old out. And you know, for six months, it's in total disarray, and then they finally realize this is the way the system is. So let's just once we get this agreement done, let's get it done and agree to it, rather than go through this crazy time for the next six months. So that was our our best outcome. And then we, I worked with the the 250 government programs over the next couple months just periodically every two weeks i get i meet with them and then they do some work on their budget and stuff anyway when we got to um three weeks before that that three month early date was um we came together and our expenses were over our income and uh, we just had three weeks left and no council members were involved in the process at that point they had been direct very directly involved earlier and so the team was like what's the use we're, we're not we're over on our spending not under the council's not here they can't support this thing um, um and we just have three weeks left you know and so i did a little deal about how to do the impossible with that team and i had them talk about why we couldn't do it which is the reasons i just gave and then if you could do it what would you do to to accomplish what we said we do and they came up with a, a bunch of ideas and three weeks after that meeting which was the date we wanted to have this budget done we had um all 250 government programs agreed to it we had the past the budget passed now by the council 100 <laughs> percent we had we didn't lose any jobs we didn't cut any salaries we didn't cut any of the sacred programs um we uh and we met the, th the three-month target we had and we didn't cut 
uh, 5% of the budget, you know, which was, I think, about $4 million reduction. We actually ended up cutting $16 million out of $55 million with that work. So, um, so all of that happened, and we had now the $16 million of, of extra, you know, a surplus now that we created because we became much more efficient in how we did things, very much more efficient, surprisingly much more efficient, surprising to me. And so we had the $16 million and there was not a lot of trust for government as most places are a lot of times. So, and even with the great work we were doing, of course, the tribal members were still like waiting and seeing, but we thought that the right thing to do was to, this was tribal members money, the 16 million. So let's put it to a vote, and give them choices. And the choices were, um, um, you guys, tribal members get all $16 million dispersed among 8,000 people or split it 50-50 with government, 8 million for the, the government, 8 million for the tribal members, or all of it for the back to the government to reinvest. And we had come up with 750 unmet needs in the tribe, in the government, and we had ranked them holistically against that goal. So we knew that the very top things were things like education, not only Western education, but also they were down to 140 elders that could speak one of the three languages. So investing to to get young people getting all kinds of tribal members learning their language, knowing their who they were of those three languages, investing in that in their culture, um, and also uh, buying more land, which was their economic base, their wealth base. <laughs> so we had things we could do to invest that money. And when we took it to the membership, surprisingly to me, they split it. And they said, instead of saying, we're, we want all the money here at the local level, we're gonna trust you government with half of this. And we would like also the other half. And so with that, they have done amazing things. Um, I went back 25 years later. And when I was there, there was, you wouldn't hear uh, Indian language spoken at all in the government buildings and whatnot. When I went back there, um, all three languages were being spoken by people. When I was there, I meant, mentioned that there was the two-year degrees for, for tribal members, the couple that were sitting on the outside. Um, it was pretty common that that was the level of Western education was like two-year degrees. And when I went back there, master's degrees were pretty common and even PhDs were not uncommon at the tribe. So that level of education had happened there. Um, and then they had acquired, you know, from 1.3 million acres, 1.3 million acres, they had acquired 100,000 acres of additional lands, and now they were now 1.4 million acres. And just in the last uh, couple weeks, um, some some things have happened. Um, one of the dreams was to get salmon back up, up way up into the Columbia River system. They now have accomplished where they haven't had salmon for 70 years, they've now got salmon going in those upper reaches of the Columbia River system um, up into Canada. And they also um, have exerted their tribal rights where now they can hunt across the international border of Canada and the United States as legitimate. That, that's their, their people, their heritage is intact. Their, you know, their, their, their sovereignty is intact with things. And then now there was a decision made about oh, a month ago that they, they, this international border doesn't mean anything in terms of who they are as people and just wonderful. So all those kinds of things were in their vision and it's happening. So it's just absolutely amazing. It's after 25 years. It's an amazing story, Jeff. It's, yeah. it's, it's like, yeah. it just, it's just permeates with regenerative. Yeah, you know, that's what it's results. all about. That's right. Regenerating in every single, uh, you know, angle and, and layer and level if possible. It's absolutely fantastic. We're going to have to leave it there, though. Uh, yes. We're, at the, we're okay. at the end of our time. I want to come back to you for more stories. Can I do that? Sure. Yeah, I enjoy this. It's, it's you know, went back to work on my PhD a few years later and about 10, 15 years later. And, um, and I'd been out of the the loop for a while. And I was, when I went back into the, the educational system, um, you know, I was really, really disheartened 
that they were um, that the, the professors were, you know, that they they didn't understand, they didn't know what we had done, you know, a couple of decades earlier. That that it was like I think it was two thousand nine. So this was, you know, so that's twenty years. What what we did twenty years ago, these remarkable changes that could happen for any group of people. You know, it doesn't have to be indigenous people. Um, you know, any government could do the things we did. And here, 20 years later, they were teaching as if that stuff didn't exist, that that, that change couldn't happen, like it didn't happen. And they, they were talking about it would be neat, but there wasn't the belief and understanding. And, and you know, and, and for me, I was looking at, I'm going to spend a bunch of money working on a PhD from folks that don't know what you can do. And it's like, why am I here? And so I I like I'm not going to this is you know the definition of insanity you know so I um I left but I have this expectation that our universities should be 30 years ahead of the knowledge not 20 years behind the knowledge and uh, so that was really disheartening and I think it's a power thing in a way that how can Indian people teach us stuff you know they're just American Indians but you know, that's that's a real problem is that we don't realize the value that everybody adds in our, our life. What can five high school kids do? You know, it's it's amazing. It's, we've got to start believing in ourselves, in, a, in other people. So anyway, thank you, Eric, for this. It was great. I really appreciate this. I always yeah, enjoy talking. Thanks, Jeff. I just I had such a good time. I'll talk to yeah. you again really soon. Yeah, yeah, great. All right. Okay, Have a great care. day. Thank you. Have you. a good day. Okay, yep. bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lettem. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. R-A-S-A dot A-G. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.